0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thank you, Mazingos, and I want to add my welcome and greeting this morning, and Say that I'm delighted that you're here. I'm delighted that you've come and you've found yourself in church. I love to go to church. Church is this marvelous, mysterious gathering of people who are the community of the new covenant. This new thing that God has done in which people who, as Jason said, who are near to God, who are indwelled by God's Spirit, come together by God's Spirit to study God's Word, to worship for God's glory There's a marvelous thing that happens. We actually believe that when we study God's word together in community like this, that God actually speaks to us in the present tense. Through ancient literature, he speaks to our hearts and our minds and to our social settings in the present tense. And so I just want to set your expectations. That's what we're here to do. We set the bar pretty high. Our expectation is that the people who gather in this room will actually commune with God. It's pretty high standard. And yet, by God's grace, he has said that he will do it. So I just want to invite you to sort of buckle up. We're going to have a full morning. And this morning, I want to start the ball rolling by addressing our topic, our sort of, our concept or idea that I want to to set the stage with is this notion of control. Now, the dictionary describes control thus... Control is the ability to exercise direction over, dominate, or command. Oh, man, that sounds awesome. Like, I would so totally love to have just a little bit of that in some aspect of my life. And it exists precisely nowhere in any part of my life. Anyway, but there's something deep within me that says I am worthy of it. There's this illusion of control i haven't been pastoring for many many decades but i've been doing it long enough that i see a common thread of dysfunction that goes amongst all humanity and it goes like this people are losing their minds because they have a fear of losing control we call that biblically anxiety Anxiety is the fear of losing control, which is actually the seed of madness, because we actually have control over nothing, and so we build for ourselves systems and structures in which we think we can have control, and yet things happen in life, and so we get frustrated. That's what frustration is. It's an expectation not met. Anger is a goal not met. And so we set our lives up and our relationships up and our jobs up and our families up and even our churches up and we expect it's all going to go according to our plan. And it just never does. It just never does. And so we get all kinds of crazy. We want so desperately to be in control. Why? Because it's an old, old story. In the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel, we're introduced to a character named Lucifer who said, I want control. I will, I will, I will. To which the sovereign God says, oh, no, you won't. And he flicks him off the mountain of God, and the rest is history. And his sin is our sin. At the end of the day, deep in the depths of our depravity, we want to be God. We want to have control, but we are not. And so this morning, I want to sort of leave us with our big idea, sort of the the overarching framework of this entire passage is going to go like this, God is in control. Let me say it another way, God is in control. Or, or, Or like this, God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. You see I'm putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable every now and then to sort of draw attention to the fact, I know we all know this, that God is in control. I'm talking here. See, I am not in control. It is a glorious thing, praise God. Hey, God is in control and this is very good news because despite all my desire, despite all my drive to be in control, I am dangerously unqualified for the role. So this is really good news that God is in control. It also is a tremendous encouragement that the one, the only one who has sovereignty, is also very good and we can trust him. It's the whole overarching point of this entire passage this morning. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 17. 2 Samuel chapter 17, we have been walking through this entire spring semester a study of the life of David. We've learned many lessons by walking through the narratives of this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king. We've learned a lot about how all of these passages point us to and prepare us for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And we've seen David go through enormous hardships. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying about one of David's sons, a boy named Amnon, forced himself upon one of David's daughters, a half-brother, half-sister relationship there. And it's an egregious, offensive, horrible tragedy that takes place. Another one of David's sons, a half-brother, takes revenge by killing this first son, which instigates all of this uh, rift in the realm, and then there's ultimately a... A rebellion and a coup is launched, and this boy named Absalom, whose name means my father is peace, gathers to himself some conspirators, and they launch uh, a, a revolt, if you will, against King David. And King David has to flee. He gathers to himself all the people of Jerusalem. He goes out the East Gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, over the hill, all the way to the Jordan River, and he awaits what's going to happen and it looks all very very bleak very very disastrous and yet by God's grace David has an asset in place so the story this week is going to pick up and we're going to cover a lot of ground today in chapter 17 but here's how we're going to do it most of these stories for many many hundreds of years were not read or taught in schools or churches They were oral histories that were spoken. They were told fathers to sons, grandmothers to granddaughters, as the history of the people of God and the faithfulness of God. And by the way, the theme of the book of Judges, if we fail to teach our children of the faithfulness of God, it is a guarantee that our society will crumble. And so these stories were originally recounted verbally. So I'm going to do that mostly today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Every now and then, I'll stop. We'll drill down into a couple passages. But by and large, we're just going to tell the story of all of these things that happened. So we find ourselves, and you can follow along, 2 Samuel chapter 17. and verse 1, it picks up right after believe it or not, chapter 16. In fact, there really should not even be a chapter break there. The narrative just continues straight through. And what we find is Absalom has taken over the palace. He's in Jerusalem. David is out in exile. He's in the wilderness. Absalom, who is absolutely gorgeous, apparently. The the text says he doesn't have a flaw on him from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. He's Captain Awesome. And he's found himself in the palace and he's wondering, how am I gonna deal with my dad? How are we going to finish this deal off? And a counselor named Ahithophel comes to him and says, here's what we should do. Now we know at the end of chapter 16 that Ahithophel, when he gives counsel, it's like the very words of God. It is brilliant, it is strategic, it is wise. It's usually airtight. And so Ahithophel says to Absalom, here's what let's do. Give me 12,000 men. And I will search for and I will find your father David, and I will kill him, and I will deliver the rest of Israel to you, and I will present the kingdom, and you don't have to do anything. This is what we should do. Now, it's absolutely efficient the way Ahithophel describes this, and it's absolutely tragic. He is talking about the murder of this boy's father about an insurrection, a revolt against the Lord's anointed king. To oppose the Lord's king is to oppose the Lord. So Ahithophel is proposing something really worthy of death. And equally tragically is the fact that Absalom hears this plot that says, you don't have to lift a finger. I will go out and murder your father and no one else has to die. And Absalom says, I like it. Let's do it. But... I think Absalom, in an attempt to seem and be kingly, the way he has seen his father operate, knows that there's another counselor at court, a man named Hushai. Hushai is friend of the king. It's a formal title. He was the advisor, the counselor to David. And he says, Hushai, come in here. I want to know what you think. And in a catastrophic move of foolishness, he tells Hushai the full counsel of Ahithophel. He says, that's what he counseled. What do you say? And Hushai says, ah, Now I know what Ahithophel has counseled, and he's able to spin it because he's secretly working for David. And he says, listen, Ahithophel's counsel, not so good this time, he's wrong. Yeah, you could do it that way, but you've got to remember, David is a phenomenal warrior, a brilliant strategist, a military man who has won many victories, and he is surrounded by the mighty men who have won tremendous victories and they're cornered and they're embittered and they are enraged like a mother bear for her cubs you do not want to go after him besides i know that david he's not even hiding with his troops he's hiding in a wholesome place and so if you come and you miss you're going to die david is cunning you don't want to do this instead absalom here's what you should do you should reinstitute the draft and call up an army from all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, as mighty as the sands of the sea, and amass this army, and then go out. You lead the war. You lead the army, and then you kill your father. Now, Hushai is brilliant. He knows that every single time an army is described in the Old Testament, as numerous as the sands of the sea, every single time, that army is destroyed by God. He's not wasting words here. Every time an army is mustered that is incredibly numerous and the odds are against God's people, God's people always are victorious because God wins the war. Now, Absalom, who never bothers to consult the priests to inquire of the Lord, only asks these two counselors. He's got two options. He can go with a surefire option in which he doesn't lift a finger, but that will deliver his dead father or another surefire option that'll involve his increased, elevated, escalated glory. What do you think a young man will choose? Mm-hmm. They're pretty wishy-washy in the court at that time because they had gone with the fells council, but now they're going to flip over and go to Hushai's council. Very, very rapidly they flip over and they go, hmm, we like that one even better. How? Because Hushai is a cunning strategist. He appeals directly. Absalom's flesh which brings us now finally to 2nd Samuel chapter 17 and verse 14 and incidentally this whole narrative that we're going to cover today the hinge and the heart of the whole passage is in verse 14 here's the whole point. 2 2nd Samuel 17 and verse 14 and Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. See, the narrator and the writer of this passage reminds us that despite all of the vying and all of the scheming, God is in control. Despite all of the the plots, all of the plans, God is above it all. He's gonna use this event to bring about his purpose. That's what sovereignty is. That's what sovereignty does. About 50 years ago, a theologian, philosopher Francis Schaeffer was asked, how do you reconcile the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? And Schaeffer nailed it. He said this, I believe in a God that lets man choose whatever he wants and God leaves nothing to chance. I think he's right. And how did the Lord defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel? By using Hushai's counsel to appeal to the fleshly pride and the vainglory of Absalom. When we think that we are strong in our own capabilities, and our own gifts, we are exceedingly vulnerable. This verse, again, is the heart and it is the hinge. God is bringing about his purpose. There is no crisis in his throne room. God is not in heaven going, oh, man, I can't believe Absalom's in Jerusalem. I never saw this coming. No. God superintends what the hearts of men intend. We see that in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph tells his brothers, oh, you intended all this for evil, but God intended it for good. Peter takes up the same thing in the book of Acts, chapter 3. He tells the people of Israel, you murdered the author of life. You did it. You're responsible. And this was according to God's plan. That is sovereignty. God is in control. Now the people who are actually experiencing this whole story in real time, they don't have the the blessing and the privilege of a narrator like we do. We're 3,000 years later, we're being told how this story goes. Ah, we get verse 14. They don't. Absalom doesn't get verse 14. David doesn't get verse 14. We get the blessing and the benefit of that. So how is this going to turn out? They don't know. But chapter 17, verse 15 through verse 22 is sort of a reminder that God is absolutely in control. What follows is a reassurance that God is sovereign. Times like this that I feel the need to quote from that great bastion of doctrine and theology and anthropology from about 25 years ago. You know it as Seinfeld, Seinfeld, And one of the primary theologians, philosophers, anthropologists of the show, Seinfeld, was a mailman by the name of Newman. And Newman once brilliantly said, when you control the mail, you control information. (laughs) Which is precisely what Hushai is about to do. Hushai is at court with Absalom and he realizes this is how this is going to go down. So he tells Zadok and Abiathar. Zadok and Abiathar are the priests that Absalom never bothers to consult, Zadok and Abiathar are also still loyal to David. Why? Because you might remember several, several weeks ago, many chapters ago, King Saul in his cray-crayness kills all of the priests of Nob. Eighty priests are killed, but one escapes, and the one that escapes is named Abiathar who flees to David and says, King Saul has done all this. He's killed the priests. And David says, you know what? This is all my fault. You stick with me and I will protect you. And Abiathar does. So Hushai needs to get information to Zadok and Abiathar. He tells them they dispatch a a young servant girl. The King James calls her a wench. Not really sure how I feel about that. Nonetheless, it's a young servant girl. And she runs to the outskirts of town and she finds the sons of Zadok and Abiathar. Their names are Jonathan and Ahimeaz. And she tells them, here's what's going to happen. But as she's telling them, ooh, the plot thickens, a young man sees all this and he runs back and tells Absalom, I saw this young wench or something telling Jonathan and Ahimeaz something that was going on. And so the two men take off and they they leave running away, trying to escape. Absalom dispatches his soldiers to go and find them. They go up over the Mount of Olives to a place called Bahurim, which is way to the east, almost to the Jordan River. And they come to the house of a couple. And they find a well, and they get inside the well, and the woman covers it over with a canvas and sprinkles grain on it and hides them. The soldiers come from Absalom, and they go, hey, have you seen Jonathan and Ahimeaz? And she says, who? Never heard of him. Never seen him. Shh. She's stomping on the well. Be quiet in there. And so they leave frustrated, unable to find Jonathan and Ahimeaz. So Ahimeaz uh, leave the house of this couple, and they go all the way to the east. They find David, and they say, David, here's the deal. Ahithophel has counseled this, but Hushai has counter-counseled this. We think this is going to happen. We're not so sure, but you cannot stay. You have to get up and go. And so David got up and went. He took all of the people with him. He left nobody behind and he gets up and he goes even farther east. Why is all of this really nuanced detail included in this passage? It's so much like minute information. Why? Because the narrator and the writer of this passage is telling us something. That our great big God uses the small lives of small people to accomplish his great grand purpose. And that's important to know. Because so many of the interactions we have on a daily basis we tend to think of as interruptions of our plans and our attempts and our illusion of maintaining control when all the while God is sending people across our paths. Our great big God uses the small lives of small people to accomplish his great big purpose. They are not interruptions at all. They are people. Answer your phone. You never know. Well, verse 23, we get a very stark uh, reaction and a response to what happens here. Chapter 17, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city that's gilo it's about 30 miles and 25 miles southwest of jerusalem he set his house in order and hanged himself wow that was abrupt like he's just you know uh filing his taxes straightening his stapler and then he hangs himself it's very efficient very cold very clinical very brief very succinct And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Wow, what is going on there? Why are we told that? Why does Ahithophel do this? Because he has betrayed the Lord's anointed, which means he has betrayed the Lord. He has blood on his hands. His plot has failed, and he knows that his time is over. He understands now that since that advice was not followed, David is a skilled tactician and strategist. He will prevail. He knows that Absalom is done, and when David comes back into power, he will destroy and eliminate all traitors like him. He has lost his loyalty to God's king. And so he, Ahithophel, is, if you might remember, he's the grandfather of Bathsheba. He was formerly one of David's mighty men. He was with the Lord's anointed and then betrayed him and hanged himself. We are intended in the New Testament to see a pattern there. There is one named Judas, who was in the company of the Lord's anointed, who betrayed him because his expectations were not being met. And then he said, I will not have this man's blood on my hands, and he hangs himself. Ahithophel, tragically, is the Judas of the Old Testament. Very efficient, the way the narrator and the writer tells about that. Well, through the end of the chapter, David crosses over the Jordan and he goes to the northeast, and he is going to be joined at a place called Mahanaim, the two camps. Mahanaim is sort of important throughout other Old Testament narratives. Look it up yourself. We're not going to get into that now. But David finds himself at a place called Mahanaim. And all of these Gentiles begin to come to him. There was even a guy named Shobi who was an Ammonite who was the brother of the Ammonite king that David had warred against. And yet David had shown kindness to Shobi, the Ammonite king. And so now what we have is the Lord's anointed king departing from Israel, going to the Gentiles, amassing unto himself a bunch of people who were formerly enemies of God, far from God, now invited into the kingdom of God, who are now going to be contributors and servant leaders. Hmm, does that sound familiar whatsoever? The Lord's anointed is gone to be among the Gentiles. Those who were far from God are now being dignified to be conti- contributors and participants in the plan of God's anointed. They bring provisions. They bring a bed for David. They bring food. They bring water. They bring all sorts of provisions so that these people can be uh, able and prepared. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, Absalom institutes a new general over the army since Joab is with David. He brings in a guy named Amasa, which is really sort of amazing. Amasa is an Ishmaelite. He comes from Ishmael. He's an Arab now commanding the leaders, the armies of Absalom's insurrection of the people of Israel. So David is uh, now joined by all of these Gentile leaders. He's heading way up into the northeast. We're heading to a massive climax. Chapter 18. In chapter 18, we see that David has continued to gather thousands and thousands of people to him. He now has a massive army. Hushai has successfully bought him time. And so he takes his army and he's not going to divide it into three sections because he's been told that Absalom is coming with an army like the sands of the sea. And so he divides his army in thirds. He gives one third to Joab. Who is a cunning, experienced military leader? He gives a third of the army to Abishai, who is the brother of Joab. You might remember Abishai. Last week we looked at him. He's the guy that when Shemai comes out of the hills cursing and dirting people with dirt, Abishai says, I think I'll take that guy's head off. And David has to say, No, 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 no. But now he's in control of a third of the army. And the third third he gives to a man named Ittai, who is a Gentile, who is a Philistine from Gath you remember Gath that's Goliath's hometown yet again the Lord's anointed continues to bring enemies who are far from God and make them servant leaders participants and contributors to his kingdom because that's what the Lord Lord's anointed will do So he divvies up the army, and this time he says, rather than staying home like I did in 2 Samuel 11, and the springtime when kings go out to war, at that time David stayed behind, which led to his eventual sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And so this time David says, not going to do that again. I'm going to ride out and battle myself. I'm going to go with you guys. And they go, you're 61, bro. It's It's not a good idea. Why don't you stay put? we will go but the reason they say they will go is not because he was weak because he wasn't it's because they know that if he dies it's all over and that all of absalom's troops are going to be zeroing in trying to get him and him alone they say listen if they kill us no big whoop you're still the king but if they get you the whole thing is over please stay here and i'm always amazed and astonished at david he says whatever you want i will do he relents to the will of the people Despite being a king, this is good politics. And so he stations himself in the gate of the city of Mahanaim, these two camps, and he allows the entire army to pass by so that he can look every single soldier in the eye and encourage them and say, I am your king, I am with you. Every single soldier passes by. And as the three commanders pass by, David says to them each, hey, please, I'm ordering you, I'm begging you, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. Please be really, really gentle with my son, Absalom. Amazingly, we're not told that they answer him at all. They just acknowledge and they move on. And then the narrator simply tells us there was a massive war. And we get like one verse about it. Apparently the writer, if it is in fact Samuel, never graduated from the Tom Clancy school of military intrigue. There's just nothing. There's a war that's fought, all of Israel fights, and 20,000 of Absalom's men are killed. That's it. It's an incredibly efficient telling. They just, 20,000 of them are wiped out. We don't get any details. I kind of want to hear about that. I want to hear about outflinking maneuvers, and I want to hear about heavy artillery. I want to hear about dragons. I want to hear about, well, you know what I'm saying. Nothing, just 20,000 are killed. That's it. But we do get one strange little detail, that as Absalom's army gets routed, thrown apparently into a terrible terror and panic, they flee and they run into the forest of Ephraim, which is way up in the northeast of Israel. And it says that the forest killed and devoured more people than the sword. <gasps> That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, a part of me thinks, all right, this is all like full-on J.R.R. Tolkien. Like the lord of the rings like absalom soldiers run in and all the trees go and just start smacking israelites right i so want that to be the thing i don't think that's the thing i think yahweh god simply had so panicked them just like he had done to the midianites under gideon's reign of 300 soldiers i think god says this one's on me i got this and he terrifies them sends them into a panic and they flee into the forest some of them fall in ravines some of them i'm sure run into trees they kill each other perhaps 20,000 are dead and more of them killed by the forest than by the sword why all of that detail well we're supposed to understand this battle was not david's it was not won by brilliant military strategy it was not won by courage nor strength the battle was the lord's god does this it was complete and he gets all of the credit and all the glory. Well, chapter 18, and now in verse 9, we get a little bit of a narrative here. So I'll read this, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And Absalom, now this translation says happened, no, 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 no. Now Absalom just so happened, it was just the craziest dink, do you see? Absalom just so happened to meet the servants of David, to which Absalom said in Hebrew, Don't! Like, are you kidding me? Of all the places he's trying to get away, he meets the servants, that is, the soldiers of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. Hmm. Now, let me explain why that's a big deal. In antiquity, in the ancient Near East, kings rode on mules, not on horses. Kings rode on mules as if to say, I am sovereign and I am in no hurry. So I ride a mule. And Absalom, though he knows his army has been routed, he knows he is in defeat, he refuses to dismount the king's mule. He will not relent. He will not repent. He will not climb off the throne of his own life, which is always a bad idea. Absalom is trying to maintain control. But we're going to be told something really brilliant in the literature of how this is phrased. There in verse 9. He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, or perhaps a terebinth. Now what's really amazing, we don't get a whole lot of supernatural here. Decades and decades earlier, these trees had begun to grow. Who knows how long ago, a decade earlier, that mule was bred. And the tree and the mule are doing precisely what they were created to do, because that's what all of creation does, with the exception of man and demons. The tree does what it's created to do. The mule does what it's created to do. Under a thick branches of a great, uh, he was riding his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. That ever happened to you? I, it's never happened to me. And you know what? I said that in the first service, and some of you know him, Kerfoot Walker, came up to me after, he goes, actually, that happened to a friend of mine on my property. I'm like, for real? He said, yeah, it actually killed the guy. That's what I said. Like, I prayed for him and snickered and he left. So apparently it had happened before. I didn't think it had, but now it's apparently happened twice, okay? His head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth. It's a really weird expression. He is caught. Heaven won't take him. Earth doesn't want him. He is suspended. And I think if you try to ride your own mule, be the king of your own throne... I think you know this feeling. Heaven won't take you and earth doesn't want you. While the mule that was under him went on. See, the kingdom has now departed from Absalom. That's what that means. The mule goes on. Ordinarily, a mule won't do that. But this mule continues to walk on. The kingdom has left Absalom. He is caught, it says, by his hair. Now, this is a great grand irony. The pride and joy of Absalom was his 20 shekel hair. His 3.2 pound gold powdered quaff, is now stuck in an oak tree. Ain't that the way it is? Sometimes the very thing you think is your greatest asset, strength, and resource is the very thing that hangs you in a tree. And there he stands, or not stands, hangs helplessly, not able to get this massive mane out of a tree. Well, the narrative continues. And in verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Well, that's not something you see every day. Like, I saw, you know, David Hasselhoff hanging from the lifeguard stand. Like, what? Huh? Yeah, that's what happened. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? In the New Eric translation, Dude, why didn't you kill him? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt it's not like accessorizing him it's a promotion it's a reward okay but the man said to joab even if i felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver i would not reach out my hand against the king's son for in our hearing the king commanded you and abishai and ittai for my sake protect the young man absalom this young man knows he's like "Uh uh-uh i heard david give orders that we're not to touch that guy i'm not touching him on the other hand he says If I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you, Joab, would have stood aloof. In other words, again, the New Eric translation, dude, Joab, you would have thrown me under the bus. I'm not going to touch that guy. To which Joab says, I will not waste time like this with you. I've had that sentiment about some of you. No, I'm kidding. I've never had that way. No, 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 no. I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three, this says javelins, three shafts or three darts, in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom, really into the torso, the midsection of Absalom, three of them while he was still alive in the oak. In other words, he didn't kill him, he just wounded him. So here we have a man and the text is very clear to tell us he's hanging on a tree and he receives three wounds that do not kill him, he's only made to suffer. Why? Because cursed, is he who is hanged on a tree. That's Deuteronomy. And every other pagan king that is ever killed by the armies of Israel are hanged on a tree because they are cursed. And now this pretend anointed one is hanged on a tree and he receives three wounds that do not kill him. While he was still alive in the verse 15, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him they take him out of the tree they cut him down now what we know from antiquity at this time if there was a traitor how he would be dealt with is he would be disemboweled drawn and quartered dismembered because they did not want that corpse to be in any way a rallying point for any future rebellion whatsoever And so the text goes on to say that Joab blows the trumpet, calls off the pursuit. Nobody else has to die this day. He stops the battle. We have won. Stop killing Absalom's troops. And then we're told that Absalom is buried. Joab can be pretty harsh. He's always sort of an aggressive, rugged character. I like to think of Joab, he's the honey badger of Israel. He's all teeth and hair. You don't want to mess with that guy but he gets things done he solves problems by might and by muscle not by mind and so he has Absalom buried thrown unceremoniously undignified into a pit covered with stones we're told that Absalom while he was alive as king which wasn't a very long time but he apparently got right to work he set up a stone with his name on it that said I'm Captain Awesome because he had no children to follow after him now that's a pickle Because we're told that Absalom actually has a daughter, whose name was Tamar, and three sons. It is thought that when Absalom takes the throne, he is so paranoid because he has betrayed his own father that perhaps he killed his own kids. We don't know that, but we know that he had three sons and a daughter, and by this point, he has no children. So either they've just died by natural causes, or perhaps they died in the war, or perhaps he himself dispatched them, we don't know. But all that's left of Absalom is a cold, dead stone pillar. Well, then we get all of this information from chapter uh, 18, verse 19 through 30. Joab has blown the trumpet. The war is over. And Ahimeaz is back. And he says, I want to go and tell the king that the war is over. Joab says, you're not going to go because the king's not going to take lightly to this news. The king kills people who bring him bad news. You're not going to go because his son is dead. And so instead he says, you, Cushite. Go tell David what has happened. Sending a Cushite is kind of like sending uh, a human text message. He's not politically involved. He's not in the family. He's just merely a messenger. A Cushite is someone who is from sub-Egypt, Africa. So Sudan, Ethiopia, and that area, he's merely a messenger. And the Cushite takes off running. But Ahimeas says, oh man, oh man, oh man, I've got to go. I've got to be the one to tell David. I've got to go. So Job says, enough. I don't want to hear this anymore. Take off. So Ahimeas goes by a longer route, But beats the Cushite to David. Why? Because Ahimeaz is desperate to give David some good news. He was the messenger that told David that Absalom was on his way and that he had to flee. He wants to be the one now that gives good news. And so David is sitting in the gate, waiting and watching. The watchman says, I see one running. David says, This is very good news. If there's just one runner, it's good news. That means he's a messenger. If there's a whole bunch of guys, that means they've been defeated and they're running this way in retreat. So this is good news. It's the Cushite runner. And then the watchman says, Ooh, I see another runner, and his running is like that of Ahimeaz. In other words, this guy was familiar with Ahimeaz's movement. He was apparently a frequent messenger. And David says, I know Ahimeaz, This will be good news. And he waits. Ahimeaz passes the Cushite runner. He takes a longer route, but gets there faster. And he runs up to David and he says, blessed be the Lord your God who has given a great victory. That's good theology. Emmaus seems to understand that God is in control. God has done this thing. It is well. He screams from a distance, shalom, all is well. And David says, "Mm, is all well with my son? It's a little play on words there. All is well. Are you sure all is well? How's Absalom? And Hemias says, and I quote, "Hamana, uh, there was a lot of activity, a lot of commotion. Uh, the sun was in my eyes. El Nino. The dog ate my homework. I don't know what happened. I kind of, I, I, I don't know. He knows that Absalom is dead because Joab said Absalom is dead and the pieces of person were also a tip off. And so David says, mm-hmm, stand over here. I'll ask the next guy. By this point, the Kushite runner comes in and he says, all is well. And David says, mm, is all well with, Absalom and the Cushite says oh man may all of your enemies because of the Lord your God has given victory may all your enemies be like that young man and David knows that his son is dead we get that narrative there in chapter 18 in verse 31 and behold the Cushite came and the Cushite said good news for my lord the king for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Deep, deep grief. He laments the loss of his son. Now in verse 19, just the first... Little section here. Verse 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city. That's still up in Mahanaim that day and as as people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice oh my son absalom oh absalom my son my son and the people are thinking we just risked life and limb for this man against the rebel the anti-anointed one now he wishes that we were all dead and that the evil traitor was still alive and they slink back into the city ashamed and defeated it should have been a parade like when david brought the ark into jerusalem instead they walked in utterly ashamed now the old honey badger is going to come back into the story verse 5 then joab came into the house of the king and said You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Joab is technically David's nephew. David's much older sister, Zeruiah, had some sons, one of which was Joab, one of which was Abishai. And yet Joab is older than David, much more experienced and he strongly rebukes him here because you love verse 6 those who hate you absalom and you hate those who love you the rest of the people for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you for today i know that if absalom were alive and all of us were dead then you would be pleased Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and it will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your time, from your youth, until now. David steps out of the frying pan and into the fire. Joab says, listen, I know that there's a time time to grieve, but that guy, you remember Absalom, the guy that burned my field? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He was the rebel. He was the anti-anointed. And now you've shown all the rest of the people that you love him more than them. You had better fix this. I'm always amazed at David. The dude can take a beating. He's resilient. Every single time he's rebuked, which is over and over and over again, he gets rebuked by Nathan. He gets rebuked by a widow from Tekoa. He gets rebuked over and over again by Joab, by everybody. He always takes it. And he pauses and he relents and he repents. He takes an order from his general and he goes out and he loves on the people. All of this narrative to remind us that God is in control. It's two and a half chapters. There are hundreds of things that we could pull out of this passage, but I'm just going to very quickly give us three. Just three things that'll help us apply this narrative to our everyday lives. The first one goes like this. God is invisible and invincible. It's both. It's both. We can't see God directly, and since we are a sensory-driven species, we often have the tendency to think that God's not really there. Or worse, that he doesn't really care. Or even worse than that, that he doesn't really have the power to help and to save. Or worse than that, that he's disappointed or angry and just refuses to because he's mean. But all of that is because we have a tendency to rely on our senses. But this passage is reminding us that God is invisible, but he's also invincible. In fact, our big God, we've already said, accomplishes his big plans through the small lives of small folks. We can see all of these kinds of things happen. We have a tendency to, when we observe little things like that, we'll say, oh man, I think that was a, I think it was a God thing. But this passage is telling us actually there's no such thing as that which is not a God thing. God in his sovereignty is orchestrating even the smallest things. No, he is not causing people to sin. Of course not, but he superintends it. He uses it because he is sovereign. There is no such thing which is not a God thing. He is invisible, but he's also invincible. He's in complete control to bring about his purpose in the macro, even if we can't see it in the micro. We trust that he can and that he will and that he is good. This entire narrative of Absalom has to be read with a memory of God's covenant with David that says, I will build you a dynasty forever. So, despite how it might look to you, David, there is no crisis in my throne room. I've got this. Number two, sin must be punished. Sin has to be punished. I understand David wanted to save Absalom, it's his son. He's. Th- He's still apparently thinking, I can fix this. If I can just get Absalom back to me, I can can solve and I can save this relationship. I can fix this. By the way, that's often how many of us as males operate. We still think we can fix this and we can't. The human problem requires a divine solution. But David's thinking, please deal gently with him. I can still fix this. We've already been told, however, in verse 14 of chapter 17 that it was God's divine purpose to take Absalom out. David's purpose was to try to save his son, but God says, no, the father must sacrifice the son to save the people. You see, salvation for the people will come at a tremendous cost to the father. He'll have to lose his son, and the son will die cursed on a tree, cast beneath stones as cursed. One guy, Dale Ralph Davis, put it this way. He said, the preservation of God's kingdom necessarily requires the punishment of its enemies. By definition, salvation includes judgment. Sin must be punished. Which, by the way, is still the content of many conversations that I have with people when they'll say, how can you as a Christian say that that's the only way? How can you say that that's the only path to God? Which tells me right away, they do not understand the enormity of sin because Christianity is the only system of religion, the only organizing narrative that actually deals with sin. No other system of religion actually deals with the problem of sin. God himself has to deal with the human problem, and it must be dealt with completely, not gently. It would be very much like what David asks, deal gently with Absalom. It would be like you and I going to the doctor, having been diagnosed with a massive, rapidly growing tumor and then telling the doctor, oh, please, deal gently with my tumor. I have grown rather fond of it. Take some of it, but not all of it. Let it live. We've gotten pretty cozy with one another. I can still fix this. That would be ludicrous. No, sin must be punished. The tumor must be relieved and removed entirely. Thirdly, the mission trumps the man. Oh, this is hard. This is really sort of mirroring right back at me. The mission trumps the man. There's no question that David has to deal with a horrible grief that is also compounded with his own complicit guilt that was brought about by his sin and his guilt. God had told David in chapter 12, the sword will never depart from your house. And I think part of David's intense grief, my son, my son, is that he knows is that he's the instigator and the initiator of all of this dysfunction. It's on him. David allows his own sentimentality to cloud the criticality of what was at stake with the kingdom and the people. There are times to grieve, but that was not the right time. God's kingdom and God's people required a leader to set aside his own personal agenda. See, God's going to get done what God's going to get done, and that principle applies even to this day. We do not cater the church in any way to the needs of her leaders. We believe that God has called this church to preach his word and to love his people. And as soon as any of our leaders start pulling the rope in a sideways direction, that leader will find himself with no support. And yes, that is incredibly convicting even for me. And I get to be frequently reminded of that by our staff, by our elders, by the staff of Bethel on the whole. And they remind me, hey, this ain't about your kingdom. It's about God's preach the word, love the people. And I'm thankful for that. And the moment that I start to go in a sideways direction, I'm done. The mission always trumps the man. God is interested in building his kingdom and not mine. All of this has to do, this narrative to remind us that God is in control. How does this prepare us for and point us to Christ? Well, it goes like this. Our invisible God became visible in the coming of Christ, and he seemed anything but invincible as he entered our world as a vulnerable infant, defenseless, and yet The coming of Jesus as Messiah was also perfectly a part of God's sovereign plan to make good on his covenant to bless David and provide a kingdom forever. The enemies of God and his kingdom must be ultimately removed. And so, in an astonishing twist, God himself becomes the curse of his enemies and he himself in Christ is hanged on a tree receives three wounds that do not kill him and is struck down in a seemingly undignified and in a shameful way. Sin has been punished in Christ. And this David, the ultimate David, the better David, though he prays to his father for the cup to pass from him and for there to be any other way, he understands that the mission of God to save for himself a people supersedes his own anguish in his own misery and his own death and his own forsakenness. The Father's mission trumps him. He is in complete control at every moment, surrendering his own spirit so that we would never have to. God is in control. So if you're here this morning, I just want to tell you this text I think comes directly to bear for you. You and I are by nature Absaloms trying to control our own empires and the mule will ride on. I invite you to believe in the Lord's anointed, That he sent Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, to do what he said he would do, to take away the sins of the world. Maybe you can't explain it all, maybe you don't even like it all, but listen, in Adam all die. We come into this world objects of wrath, but God offers by grace to see us through the finished work of his son Jesus, to be numbered among his anointed. Enemies of God brought near to be participants and contributors to his kingdom. And for the rest of us, perhaps, you've gotten in a rhythm and a rut where you have forgotten that God is in control and it's not your job. Perhaps you've gotten more attached to that old secular adage, if it's to be, it's up to me. I just want you to know that God will consistently interrupt that campaign. God is in control. And to be mindful of all of the small lives of the small people that come across your path. Perhaps it is our great big God accomplishing his great big purpose in you through them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, that you are God, you are good, and we can trust you. Father, I pray that you will redeem these words, that you will impress upon our hearts the truth and the glory of who you are and what you have done. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that you would lead them out of death and into life. Father, for the rest of us, would you encourage us and comfort us by your spirit, through your word, among your people, that you are in control, despite our lack of a narrator to remind us, you have given us one. You are good. You have come, and your son, Jesus, will come again. Father, I pray that we will live differently, because of this, We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again so much for being with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for a quick word of benediction. If you are going to go to Discover Bethel, please remember to sign up. You can do that out in the foyer. Uh, this benediction comes to us from the book of Hebrews chapter 13, if I can just get there. Hebrews chapter 13, it goes like this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.